I'm known as Larry Griswold. My full name is John Lawrence Griswold. I was a high school student in the early 60s in Morristown, New Jersey. And I wound up, you know, applying to and being accepted uh, into the class of 1969 uh, at Grove City. Uh, back then, um, this came as a bit of a surprise. Back then, participation in Air Force Reserve Officer Training, or ROTC, was mandatory for all male students for the first two years. And I went into that not particularly inclined, you know, to the Air Force or not uh, against it either. And in the um, spring of my sophomore year, the Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Ware, who was in charge of the detachment, called me into a meeting in his office, a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, and basically recruited me. And I, I liked what he said, and I liked the idea. Uh, I knew starting my junior year what was going to be happening after I graduated. I was going to go serve in the Air Force, and that turned out to be a big part of my life and a decision I will always be glad that I made. So that's, that's basically my history. I, I had hoped uh, to be assigned to the East Coast in the Air Force because that's where I grew up. If I couldn't do that, I asked to be assigned um, to the West Coast to see something new. I got orders to the headquarters of Strategic Air Command, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. So they put me right in the middle. I was in Nebraska a little over about two and a half years, and then I got the uh, assignment that I really wanted, which was Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. New Hampshire only has about 10 or 11 miles of seacoast tucked in between Massachusetts and Maine. Well, this base was right on the seacoast, so it was a beautiful place to be, especially in the summertime, and I had... Uh, asked to be a basically a public relations officer for the Air Force, what they called information officer. And I didn't get that. When I started in Nebraska, I was actually a publications editor, which was an administrative job. But I, I, I applied again to become a public relations or information officer. And I got the job I wanted at the location I wanted in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I might have stayed there for 20 years. But after about a year, they told me they wanted me to go to Guam and, and run the Armed Forces Radio TV station. They told me that I had two choices. One was to go by myself unaccompanied. I was married. Um, and one was to go unaccompanied for 18 months or accompanied for 24 months. And uh, I, I was told by people how nice it would be and so forth, but I wasn't inclined to a 20-year active duty career. And I, I found that I had a third choice, which was I could remain on active duty in New Hampshire for another year, which gave me lots of time to look for a job, and then I had to leave. And so I left, I left the Air Force active service in June of 74, and I went to work in Boston in public relations for the telephone company, but I continued to serve in the Air Force Reserve until I, I reached the number of years where retirement was mandatory. Had a job, uh, it was a high-level job with the Air Force Public Relations Office in New York City. And I had to do two weeks, usually in the summertime, and then one or two days a month. And there were times when I enjoyed doing that, and there were times when I felt like I was just 
really not doing anything, wasting time. And so as nice as that assignment was, I found another assignment, which was a lower level reserve assignment. And for a while, I was doing critiques of high school newspapers in New Jersey and, and just sending feedback to students after looking at their papers on what I liked and what I thought could be improved and how to improve it. And then that particular reserve assignment was eliminated um, and I needed a new one. And in 1983, I started doing admissions counseling for the Air Force Academy. Um, I started out in Boston doing public relations work. Unfortunately, New England Telephone decided to start trimming the ranks and it was straight seniority and I was in a particular pay grade where if you had 18 months you stayed if you had 17 months and 29 days you left and so I left and they they helped me find another position with the long distance arm of AT&T in New York City I worked on an employee paper I didn't enjoy that very much I did a couple of other things very briefly and uh public relations, but someone that I had met socially who worked as a media planner in a large New York advertising agency told me, you know, there's there's people that do advertising sales for publications. All of my publishing experience was really on the editorial side, but they said, you know, this person told me about a business side and said, I think you would do well in that. And one thing led to another, and I wound up going to work for a small magazine about building, remodeling, home improvement, and so forth. And I liked it and I did well. I had been a longtime reader of Sports Illustrated, the National Weekly Magazine, though. And after about 10 years in advertising sales, I got hired uh, to work for Sports Illustrated and I finished my career there. I basically worked there 20 years. I started working in New York City. Um, in 1975. So on September 11th, 2001, I had been working for, uh, I've been working in New York City for 26 years, generally took a train from my home in New Jersey, occasionally took a bus or occasionally drove in if I was going to be staying late or something like that. Um, and uh, I had been working at Sports Illustrated, let's see, about 12 years, uh, a little over 12 years when September 11th happened. The day before, Monday, September 10th, was an absolutely beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. Couldn't have been nicer. And we had a golf outing with advertising clients at a course in Connecticut. And that was very nice. But I remember driving home that night. It turned extremely dark and we had heavy, heavy, heavy rain. And it wasn't very pleasant to be driving in that, but we got through it. We woke up on Tuesday morning, September 11th, and it was another just gorgeous day. Couldn't have been nicer weather-wise. But before I, normally I would have been on a train at 7 a.m. But that day I had, I was having some physical therapy on a shoulder. And I had a physical therapy appointment in New Jersey. And so I, uh, I went to that and I got on a later train. Um, and I didn't get to New York until after nine o'clock and after both planes had struck the World Trade Center. My first 
knowledge that something was happened had happened was the train's last stop before getting into Penn Station in New York. The last stop was in Newark, New Jersey. And the it was later, it was really after rush hour. So the car I was in maybe was half full as opposed to rush hour when they were completely full. And a conductor, while we were stopped in Newark, a conductor came walking up the aisle and he said, two planes have flown into the World Trade Center. And I knew immediately it was a terrorist act. One, one plane could have possibly been an accident, although unlikely, but not two. And there was a young woman, very young woman, sitting right to my left uh, on the train. And as soon as the conductor said that, she said, oh, my goodness, my brother works there at the World Trade Center. And so that was my first thought about somebody, you know, being caught up in this. The train pulled out from Newark on the way to Penn Station, and we went through an area uh, called the Meadowlands, which is basically wide open swampland. And through the windows on the right side, we could see, because it was such a beautiful, clear day, we could see both towers. They were both smoking heavily from pretty high up, not not down low, but from pretty high up. And uh, I knew it was bad. How bad it would turn out to be, I didn't know. Nobody knew at that point. The train got into Penn Station. I think it was probably the last train in before they shut down the rail system. I jumped on a subway to ride about uh, 18 blocks north to my office. I got into my office, and of course, everybody was there. And there were a variety of reactions. There were some people trying to work. They were sitting at their desk trying to do their jobs. There were other people walking around saying, look, if you can't get home tonight because all the commuting systems have been shut down, if you can't get home tonight, I, I have an apartment in the city. You can stay at my apartment. There were other people going around with the latest rumors. Oh, I heard that eight planes have been hijacked you know, and so forth. And nobody knew exactly what was going on. But it was it was quite a time, you know, very unsettling time. Fortunately, for me and my colleagues, our offices were up in Midtown 50th Street at Rockefeller Center, where the World Trade Towers were basically at the southern tip of Manhattan, an area that would become known as Ground Zero. So we were we were physically several miles from where the terrorist act had taken place. Initially, we were staying in place. My wife, Barbara, who graduated one year after me from Grove City, reminded me that we did initially have a phone conversation after I got to the office. But before long, um, the phone system was blocked so that uh, only inbound calls could come in, outbound calls could not be made. Uh, for a while, um, we just kind of wondered what should we do. And then we were told by early afternoon, you have to leave. Okay, we are closing the building, you have to leave. And so I remember walking with a couple of other fellows. My office was at 50th Street, and I remember that we walked down the middle of 6th Avenue, Avenue of the Americas. Now, we normally would never do that because there would be hundreds of cars, um, but traffic had pretty much come to a halt. We were walking maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon, beautiful, beautiful sunny day, down Avenue of the Americas, 
We looked up, we could see occasionally a military uh, fighter jet would fly over our head. We got to Penn Station, which is big and it covers a couple of blocks and it has multiple entrances and police were outside. And when you told them where you were going, they gave you a specific entrance to go to. And for people trying to get to New Jersey, like me, um, we went to the completely opposite corner of Penn Station than we would normally go, but that's where we were told to go. The crowd was accumulating outside. Then they opened doors and they had people enter single file, um, which wasn't traditional at all. Uh, but we entered single file and basically the instructions were get on the first train that you can get on um, as opposed to looking for the specific train for your destination. So I went in, I got on a train. It turns out uh, the train that I was on was headed for the Jersey Shore, which was not where I wanted to go. But there are two different station train stations in Newark. Um, and the train that I was on stopped at the other station in Newark, not my normal station. And I got off and they had a bus there to take people who wanted to get to the other station. So that's what I did. I got on the bus, got to um, the right station in Newark and waited for a train headed in the direction I wanted, got on it. We started moving and we had several stops before my stop, but I remember two things very vividly. Um, as we pulled into some of these stations, they had tents set up as decontamination stations for people who were getting off. And the earlier stations before mine had larger numbers of people getting off. I remember looking out a window. And this is hard. Seeing a woman with a child who saw her husband and she doubled over. Obviously she was very glad. She was thrilled, but it was very emotional. I also remember seeing another woman in a business suit, just covered with debris. She had long hair and her hair was full of scraps and bits and her shoulders were covered with scraps and bits and dirt and dust. And she was walking on her own, but not very fast. I think she was probably in, in shock because she had been so close to the devastation that she'd gotten covered with, with litter and dirt. And somebody met her and kind of helped her along and probably took her because I was still on the train, so we weren't there very long, probably took her to the decontamination area. Eventually we got to Sterling, New Jersey, which is a small stop with just a siding. That's where I lived. I got off the train, my car was there. I got in my car, I drove to my house less than a mile away. And my son was home, he was 16. My wife, Barbara was home. And I remember hugging my son and saying, look, I've never had anything this bad happen in my life before. And I hope nothing this bad ever happens in your life again. 
and we had our church, small Presbyterian church, but actually close to the station and close to our house, had a service that night at 7.30, and we attended that, and everybody just kind of sat there, really in one level of shock or another. No work the next day, the office was closed, stayed home. The news was pretty much 24 hours over what had happened. There were no airplanes in the sky. The whole civil aviation system had been shut down. Um, and then went back to work on Thursday. And remember, everybody was totally on edge, wondering if there would be another attack. Um, and I had a young woman assistant who came to me in the middle of that Thursday and asked if she could leave because she feared another plane flying into a building in New York City. And, and we told her, you know, go ahead. But um, it, was, it was a scary time. I remember maybe a week later, I was asked to stay in for dinner at a restaurant with a couple of potential clients and really all I wanted to do was go home. But I did stay in and had that dinner and then I got home as quickly as I could. And it was, you know, uh, very different. The, I used to go to a, a Hilton hotel about a block away from the office to work out in their gym at lunchtime if I didn't have a schedule. And all of their meeting space, all of their conference rooms, all of their ballrooms had been taken over by banks or companies or firms whose offices were either in the World Trade Center or downtown. And obviously they couldn't operate and, and continue in business in that area. So they, uh, you know, they found temporary space in, in New York City, in, in Midtown Manhattan. I remember some more things that are personal when I would get on the train to go home at night, I'd just jump on and get the first seat available because this, it would leave the station full and you didn't want to try to get in the right car. You just wanted to get a seat. But as what, as what would happen as people began to get off the train um, and I would get closer to my station, I would move up to the front so that when I got off, I could get in my car and get out of the parking lot on the way home before the gate went up and there was a lot of traffic keeping me from doing that. When I would do that, I would pass a younger woman who was doing the opposite. She was moving from the front toward the back. I did not know her, but I remember passing her many, many times. It turns out that she was getting off at Millington, which was the next stop after mine. She um, was the mother of twins and she died in the World Trade Center. And initially she was not identified because she used, you know, her married name as a resident, but her, her maiden name and her work. And so it took a little while for her to be identified as one of the victims, but eventually she was. And then when I saw her picture, I knew she was the woman that I passed 
on the train as I was getting close to home and she was getting close to home and we were both moving to the right area of the train where we wanted to get off. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know when the New York Times started this, but nearly 3,000 people died in the World Trade Center. A lot of first responders, uh, way over 300 firemen, police officers, and then people who work there. And uh, at some point after that, the New York Times, which I would read on the train, began enjoying many stories about these people where they would have a full page of the paper, two full pages of the paper, and they'd have a thumbnail photo and a couple of paragraphs about the person. And that went on and on and on for a long time because with almost 3,000 people, and I don't know what they ran in an individual paper, but maybe 25 or 50 at the most, it took quite a long time to do that. And I remember reading those on my train ride in the morning. But one of the victims in the World Trade Center was a young man named Sean Lynch. Now, we did not know Sean. We did not know his wife, Lori, but we knew Lori's sister because Lori's sister, Eileen, uh, a resident of Chicago, was married to my cousin's son. Well, this is kind of a long roundabout family connection. Lori Lynch was left with two little girls, three and 17 months, and was also pregnant with the third child when her husband died. And it turned out not only did Sean die in the World Trade Center, but his older brother, Farrell, father of three girls, also died. They both worked at the same firm, Cantor Fitzgerald, on the 104th floor of the World Trade Center tower. And the plane that hit that tower flew in underneath, which basically doomed everybody who worked that high up. So. We had asked about trying to do something to help Lori, and we were told, really, she wants to be left alone, that people were just showing up at her house, which was maybe 15 miles away from us, wanting to help, but that that wasn't what she wanted. So we, we backed off. Well, a couple of years later, one of my big and favorite clients was HBO television. And I was particularly uh, close to the head of their sports group, a man named Ross Greenberg, who uh, was a wonderful, wonderful sports documentary maker. And baseball, like everything else, stopped in New York City when the terrorist attacks happened. And then when they started again, the teams were on the road, the, the National League team Mets, the American League team Yankees. But they came home. And all of the players wore hats for the first responders, fire department, police department, any other kind of first responder. That's what the players wore instead of their standard team hats. And it kind of helped New York City start to feel like life was returning to something normal. Well, my friend Ross had gone to um, the, the Yankees made the World Series. No surprise, they did that a lot. And he went to the first game and he said, oh, there's a story here. President Bush came and he threw out the first pitch and he actually threw a very good pitch. He had been warned by a 
famous Yankee player that if you throw a bad pitch, you're going to get booed. And so he threw a good pitch. Um, and my friend Ross Greenberg decided to make a documentary about that World Series. It was titled Nine Innings from Ground Zero. It premiered in 2004, so about three years after 9-11. And it had several people who had lost a family member. Started with a young woman whose father was a fire department captain, and he'd given her Yankee tickets for the game the night before September 11th, which in the end, it turned out that game was rained out. Uh, but he said he, he, his daughter wanted him to go, but he couldn't go because he had a meeting of fire captains. Well, he, he perished. He was one of well over 300 firemen who perished. And so the story was about how baseball kind of brought life back to New York City and it helped some survivors. Another one was a teenage daughter of one of the airline pilots who died. And she wrote to Derek Cheater and was invited to a game. And it really helped her. Her mother said it was the first time she could remember her daughter singing since she lost her father. And then late in the documentary, they interviewed Karen Lynch, the younger brother of Sean and Farrell. And he talked about that day. He was in Connecticut. As soon as he heard, he called Farrell, the older brother. He said, go get Sean and call me. Well, he never heard from either brother again. And finally, I think in game five of the New York City of the, of the World Series, when the Yankees were back in New York, he went to a game and he, Yankees came from behind and won at the end. And he said, you know, people were high-fiving and hugging people they didn't even know. But that it, um, it helped him, as he said, get out of the muck. And, and move his life forward. And so I got a copy of that. I was close enough to HBO that they were willing to give me a copy. And I mailed it to Lori Lynch because uh, I had her address. And I got a very nice note back from her about how much she appreciated it and how much she thought Karen had done a good job of portraying her husband, his brother, and her brother-in-law, the other brother who perished. And the pain they went through and that the, you know, good family member, good fathers, these young men were. And by, by then, you know, it was three years later. So presumably she was, had moved on and was, you know, raising the three girls that she and her husband had, but, but without a husband for her, without a father for those girls. And I, you know, when I went to see that, when HBO would come out with a new documentary, and they would do about three or four a year, a new sports documentary, they would always have a screening in their little theater in New York City. So I went to the screening and I saw it before it aired. The screening was primarily for the press, so that they would write articles and do stories, and and more people would tune in. They'd say, "Oh, I want to see that." And I remember. Um, going to that screening and having no idea that the Lynch family would be in it, but they were. And so knowing, you know, how to contact Lori Lynch, I asked 
and and seeing how well done the documentary was, um, I I asked for a copy, which they gave HBO gave me, and I mailed it to Lori. She probably still has it, you know. And those those little girls are all twenty women in their twenties now, um, and I'm sure they've seen it too. You know, for so long, people who lost loved ones who weren't found because in that wreckage, a lot of bodies were buried for quite a while. But people would go down and stand there holding up a photo like, has, has anybody seen this person? And that's all they could do. You know, and the, uh, the documentary did a good job of dealing with the feelings of the firemen and, and the others who were there going through all the debris and all the rubble and finding people or, you know, finding human remains. It was a hard time for a long time for a lot of people. Actually, Hillary, I was lucky, okay? I was very lucky and fortunate, and I thank God for that, that I was able to get on a train and get to New Jersey and then get from the train I started on to another train, which was the right train. And I got home at approximately six o'clock. There were people who didn't get home. You know, they just couldn't get to where they could get home and they had to find a place to stay overnight. So, you know, as far as the impact on my son, he's a very thoughtful young man, but he's a quiet young man. Okay. Um, and so he didn't have a lot to say about it. Uh, I know that when I went back to work, not, not on Wednesday because our office was closed, but on Thursday of that week, I wanted to go in and do my job the best I could, but I wanted to turn around and get home as quickly as possible. And I felt like that because it was such a shock to have something so unexpected happen that somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm sure it was, I was thinking this could happen again. And I don't want to be cut off from my family. Uh, I want to be home. And and I remember specifically that dinner that I was invited to, and it was in a fancy steakhouse or something. And, and I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of obligated to do this as part of my job, but I sure want to get out of here and get home as fast as possible. You know, and then the impact for me was reading those little stories on in the New York Times every morning as I rode the train to work. But my son didn't see those. You know, and life went on. You know, when I would drive into New York City, which I occasionally did because I was staying late or I, I or maybe I was leaving early to go somewhere else other than home. I, I tended to park at the Port Authority ter terminal because it was very close to the Lincoln Tunnel. But as I would drive up the ramp to the parking lot, there would be police waiting and you would stop and they'd want you to open the trunk of your car to make sure you weren't carrying, you know, weapons or or something like that. And that went on for quite a while. Um, IDs 
when you would go into the buildings, into the high-rise buildings in Midtown Manhattan, IDs had often been asked for in the past, but they were always asked for now. And, and uh, new systems were uh, put into place. I remember one where you would go in the building and you would say why you were there and you would show an ID and they would take a photo of you and print out a paper ID with your photo on it and you were expected to wear that while you were in the building. Bag searches, you know, which are still every day at airports, bag searches became common and so forth. So things changed and, and stayed changed for a long time. One of the signs of the victims when that happened for commuters of which many, many people who work in Manhattan are commuters. One of the signs of the victims was cars in parking lots that were not picked up. And one of the big, probably the biggest stop on my train line to New York was Summit, New Jersey. And there were a lot of cars in the parking lots at Summit, New Jersey that were not picked up. A lot of the victims, victims covered all ages, all races, you know, there was no distinct distinction. And um, a lot of the victims were young, married men, and a lot of young, pregnant women were suddenly widows. And I remember People Magazine perhaps was, People Magazine was published by the same company, Time Inc., that I worked for that published Sports Illustrated in Time and other magazines. And I remember a story with a photo of a large group, probably 20 young women who were pregnant and were suddenly widows after 9-11. And I think about them from time to time and those children, and those children are all young adults themselves. And I just hope that life turned out well for them in spite of a terrific loss, an irreplaceable loss, because some of those children knew their, were old enough to know their father and have memories. Some of them were so young, they probably have no memories, but they have photographs, you know, and, and stories. So I was there for many more years. Um, a good friend that I had made young man named Jay Weinkam, who worked in a New York ad agency that I called on, had actually left that to go to work on the staff of New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And Jay was an advance man. His job was to go ahead of the mayor to wherever the mayor was scheduled to be and kind of scope things out. And when the mayor arrived, Jay said, okay, come over here, or this is gonna happen at that time and so forth. That Tuesday morning was actually an election day. It wasn't a major election, but it was a primary election. And Jay had gone to the polling place where the mayor was going to vote. He was waiting there when he was notified that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. He knew immediately that the mayor would not be coming to, to vote, that, you know, that was off the table. So Jay got on a subway and got down to the World Trade Center and connected with the mayor and was basically by his side most of the time for 
months and months and months. And one of the things that the mayor had to do was attend a lot of funerals, attend a lot of wakes. He couldn't get to them all, but he got to an awful lot of them. And so that was part of Jay's job. And then, you know, Mayor Giuliani left office. He was selected as Time Magazine Man of the Year for his handling of the crisis. He wrote a book about leadership. Um, and he formed a private consulting firm called Giuliani Partners. And initially, Jay went to work with him at Giuliani Partners. But then eventually, Jay left to go to work for the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Um, and he's still there. He's, uh, he's, vice, he's executive vice president of government and community affairs at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. And I'm sure they will be doing a number of special events. I mean, they do a special event every year on 9-11. And this year, because it's the 20th anniversary, they will do um, a number of special events. I, I probably was back in New York City. I retired in 2008, and I continued to live in northern New Jersey for about two more years, two and a half years. And then I retired to Asheville, North Carolina, where I live now and have lived since the summer of 2010. And I have not been back to New York City. I'm still in touch with friends there and so forth. And someday I'll go back. But I, I had a lot of years. I had well over 30 years of working in the big city. And so I like, kind of like it out in the country where it's a little less densely populated. Less traffic and so forth. 